This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. But in life, there are no guarantees and no refunds for your precious, precious time. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer. I've studied philosophy in and out of school for more than 20 years, taught it here and there, and my philosophy podcast, The Partially Examined Life, has been downloaded something like 40 million times. But when I was a kid, I wanted to be in comedy. And I have, over the last couple years, been convinced that improv is something that I really should have gotten some training in, but never did. And I am Bill Arnett. I've been involved with improv comedy for 25 years as a performer, teacher, and producer. I was the training center director at the I.O. Theater in Chicago and uh, left four years ago to start my own business, the Chicago Improv Studio. I'm the author of the book, The Complete Improviser. And while I've never been formally trained in philosophy, people have told me my approach to improv is philosophical. But is it? Well, that's the question, isn't it? So each of us has something in mind to teach the other person today. We're not just going to state it up front, and we're not going to take turns. Sure. (laughs) Those are the only two rules. That's fine, man. That's fine. Please give the opening salvo, and I'll see if I can awkwardly work (laughs) in some question or point related to philosophy in response. You got it. Somewhere. Well, here you go. We've already been improvising. At no point did we, uh, with the exception of our little prepared intros, our other little speeches and things, we're not prepared. And I have not prepared what I'm saying right now. Uh, And you haven't prepared to hear it either. So we are in the moment. We are hearing our words for the first time. We are reacting to them and living in the reality that they create. Now, is this entertaining? Is this compelling? Is this impactful? Don't know. But it is certainly improv in the broadest sense of the word. Now, (laughs) to improv appropriately, though, I have to respond in some way that actually shows that I've been listening to you. (laughs) Is that, that's the first rule? (laughs) Well, it's the true in any conversation in life. Uh, if, If two people are just talking at each other and not hearing and reacting and and whatnot, well, then that's not really a conversation. That's just dueling monologues. But one of the things that good improvisers do, at least when they're funny, funniness, from what I understand, from what I read in the papers, (laughs) there's the unexpected. Sure. So I can't, if I'm merely answering yes or no, I mean, you might not get that, but what if, for for instance, I responded to your question with a question like, uh, Mm -hmm. Do you think murder's bad? (laughs) Well, you know, I could say if we're having this conversation and that felt like it was out of place, I could say right back, murder? We're talking about improv and philosophy. Why are you, why are you changing the topic? Why are you going somewhere else? So that, so just being unexpected is not enough to make it funny. Well, unexpected, it takes two to tango. It's only unexpected if I'm not expecting it. And I treat it as though I was not expecting it. If you ask me if murder is bad, and I go, well, you know, I guess it depends on the context, well, then I guess that was somewhat expected. <laughs> We're talking about improv and philosophy. We'll worry about murder later, okay? In that regard, I am indicating to the audience, to the viewer, that I was not expecting you to say that. In fact, you could give me something quite bland, and I could be treated as though I wasn't expecting it, and now it's unexpected. And I know people are expecting me to just <laughs> keep trying to ask you about murder. <laughs> but I'm going to switch... To stealing. Do, do you think, <laughs> you think maybe stealing is bad? Okay. You're doing it again. You're doing it again. It's, uh, but that's the whole idea is that it's easy to look at improv and see the result of good improv and confuse the result with how do we get there? And the getting there part is often 
letting go of expectations, letting go of what should be happening or shouldn't be happening or what is or what isn't funny, and instead choosing to live together in this imaginary world and allowing things to occur, yet always being aware and open that something interesting may happen. Interesting, quote unquote. And of course, in pretending that I don't know what humor is (laughs) and that it's just anything that is, I'm taking really a philosopher's stance of backing off from the topic. (laughs) And why else would I ask you? Of course, I know you're going to, if you were going to deign to answer that murder is bad and stealing is bad, it would only be rhetorical. It would only be because I'm trying to establish a baseline that everybody kind of has some things in common. And there's going to be some further point made from that, since that would not be interesting in itself. Sure. The talking about interest or disinterest, and if you think about movies or TV shows or anything, some things are interesting and some are not interesting. You know, Harry Potter is fantastical, very popular. Can't disagree that it was quite popular. The Twilight Saga, not as popular, yet equally fantastical. What Harry Potter has in common with other forms of good literature is that we understand the people and we believe what we're hearing. We believe what we're reading, even though it's fantastical. It's like, yeah, I will willingly suspend my disbelief to believe what I'm reading in this Harry Potter world. Bad science fiction, bad fantasy stuff. We just, we can't believe it. (laughs) I know it sounds strange that we can believe Tolkien, but we can't believe some late night sci-fi channel movie. Now, one of the things that seems like, I'm trying to remember if there's any scene in the Twilight franchise where they hang out in a bathroom and there's a ghost there. Because that's the kind of mundane details that makes the Harry Potter movies relatable. That these kids are going through these things and at least the films, I don't know about the books, of Twilight, yeah, they're in class, but like, you don't remember the names of any of her classmates. They're bland and terrible. (laughs) Well, I think that's totally it. I think you would agree that some people are good storytellers and some people are poor storytellers. Some people are good joke tellers. Some people are bad joke tellers. Even with the same joke, I can find someone who can hit it out the park and I can find someone who can do a terrible job of it. And I think that difference between the good joke teller and the poor joke teller is something about believability, something about relatability, something that when this good joke teller, a good stand-up is telling a story You know, if Dave Chappelle is telling a story, it's like, I think that really happened to him. I really think that happened, even if it never did. I believe it did. And that gives it some gravity. It's a real event happening to real people. Therefore, it will affect me. So let me just draw a parallel (laughs) that just like two different tellers could hit or miss on the same joke. Likewise, with moral intuitions, many of us could agree the stealing is bad, murder is bad. But yet some folks have some sort of grounding for that. You know, some folks have just been taught that. And then when they face a novel situation, I know in the abstract stealing is bad, but yet what about uh, stealing MP3s? Is that even counted stealing? And they don't know what to make of that. And so there's something about having a foundation. So what is the comparable foundation for jokes? (laughs) Well, you can't guess anyone else's sense of humor. That's hard to do. You also probably, the giant caveat is here is that there's lots of different kinds of improv. Comes in so many different flavors and forms. Uh, And it's like music. It's like, hey, you like music? Boy, let's listen to music. Music sure is fun. And it's like, well, what what kind of music? I mean, there are genres and subgenres and sub-subgenres. You know, you like heavy metal? Well, I like thrash metal. 
What about death metal? Only if it's pre-86. You know, we get so fine in, in defining these things. And the same thing can be true with comedy and, and whatnot as well. For everybody who loves seeing someone slip on a banana peel, there's another person who's going to say that's derivative and hack. A child who has not been exposed to much of life may find certain things funny that the rest of us that we've seen a million times and know that the person who's making the joke is intentionally making a joke knowing that it is quote unquote funny. And we can see through that sometimes and don't think much of it. So there's still the distinction that you might make between somebody who's just done it a lot, right? You're talking about somebody who's had experience not only seeing, but trying to replicate in some way in their own lives, in a professional capacity, whatever, (laughs) comedy. And that it's only when you try it a lot of times and sort of work out the art of doing it. Much like if you're trying to, you know, a young person is not going to be as morally experienced, is not going to know... When they hit novel situations, how to apply their abstract principles that they've been taught. Or, sure. you know, I guess even in entertainment, we have a lot of moral exemplars, but usually they're pretty simple, right? It takes part of that mundane detail, like the bathroom, is adding to your villains, some of them, some redeeming quality, some three-dimensionality, so that you can teach kids that it's not just that... uh why can I not remember Tom Felton's name in the Harry Potter movies? The bad kid. Draco Malfoy. Draco Malfoy, yes. That he is seems a merely one-dimensional, despicable little shit. But yet by the later ones, like, okay, well, at least by comparison. And when faced with some truly awful things that he's asked to do, he does stop short of the line. And so, I don't know, what do you think? Is that actually teaching the subtlety, the art of making your way through life? Or is it just saying that even if you're terrible, there are places in which you can still turn back? As a father of two children in elementary school and having read children's books from, you know, C-Spot Run all the way to and through the Harry Potter books, there is an arc to them. And I think that arc is ultimately, hey, kid, things aren't so simple. Things aren't so simple. And I know at the beginning, we're seeing a dog run, but as these books get more, go further along, you know, we go from having a good guy in a white hat and a bad guy in a black hat to having just a grouchy guy. He's just grouchy. Is he good or evil? I don't know, but he's grouchy. You know, SpongeBob, I want to say is his like boss, you know, at the, at the, in the little burger stand, it's just grouchy, but is he evil? You know, and I think, you know, talk about Draco Malfoy, I think by the end, if he has any redemptive arc, it's kind of, he's a victim of circumstance. It's kind of his upbringing a little bit. And it's kind of, I think at the very, very end, he starts having, at least in the movies, showing some remorse. And the actor does a good job of like, uh, there is a heart in there. It's it's buried under a lot of garbage, but there's something in there. And I think that that's the, the kind of the arc of children's stories is like, kid, it gets messy. And next thing you know, you're reading Lord of the Flies. Gee whiz, you know, talk about subjective morality, you know, it's like, uh, well, and I guess that is kind of what I'm wondering about is whether there is in the discovery of a character like that, that there are limits, whether it's just all emotional or whether there is any reference to some sort of moral principles, some sort of, you know, that's at least how many evil in quotes characters are humanized that, well, at least they're obeying some set of principles that they have. There might be very confused principles. They might be ones that like Thanos for the the greater 
good of the world. I must will that half of you, half of everyone disappear, you know, very misguided, but at least they've got some sort of code. Would you say that having a code is even necessary or being, let me say this, being aware and able to articulate your code? Is that even necessary? Can people have a code and not even realize it? Or can they have a kind of a wishy-washy code? Does that make sense? You're the philosopher. (laughs) Well, I would want to know the status of that code. It's why you have that code or what you think it's rooted in. Because clearly, I think, you know, we historically come in a tradition of God-given law, right? Sure. Whether you or I are religious at all, we're still affected by that way of thinking things. And so the idea of a code and maybe it could be a personal code. Maybe it could be a code related to your order of the Phoenix or whatever it is you're a member of. But you might question whether what actually could justify a code. I mean, is it really just something that seems useful for most situations or this is what it's passed down to me? Yeah. Or if you have a code and are frequently not following it, is it even a code anymore? I mean, if, you know, you talk about the order of the Phoenix. And while bravery is certainly uh, something that's attributed to all Gryffindors, not everyone is always brave at all times. And there are moments of struggle and moments where people can't find the courage to do things. Does that mean that their code wasn't bravery all along? Or does that mean they're just struggling to meet their code? Well, it could be that the code itself is not the central way that they think about what they're going to do. If you, you mentioned bravery, and virtue is another sort of way of thinking about that is more in consonant with how the ancient Greeks, for instance, thought about it, and less so with our biblical tradition, that we do have what would Jesus do or something like that. And in fact, there was a big industry of like the lives of the saints. And how can I live in these extreme ways? And you might even think that some of these folks, like there's no way that you could actually be like that. But just having that model there and so that seems maybe easier, but but also more subjective than having like an actual set of laws that you've laid out for yourself or that you've received. Yeah. And, you know, to bring this right back to improv, many people walk into the improv world thinking they're going to get, well, here here's some laws and some rules. Rule number one, yes and. Rule number two, don't ask questions. Rule number three, don't say no. And there are teachers, and you go online, you're going to see a lot of that, and not that it's necessarily broken or wrong, I'll be in safe judgment for later, but people, when they come into it, and having taught this for a long time, not everybody, but many of these students walk into it, it's like, just tell me how to do it right. And they want a color by numbers, they want a flow chart of this is how you do it. And I appreciate that, and I get that all of us in our lives would, I mean, who doesn't want direction who doesn't want, at least at certain moments of our life, it's not necessarily always wrong. However, you got to transcend that at some point, especially if you're going to be doing any kind of improv that looks like life looks like. I think the Christopher Guest movies, Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman. Waiting for Guffman. Yeah, they, they use a lot of improv in those, I am told. And again, if you're going to get improv that looks like life, that looks like that, you got to abandon the idea that there's any of these concrete behave this way types of rules. They get very, very big. They get big like we're improvising right now. They get galactic. They become understandings. The more you do it, the more you get into it. Well, and I like the idea of understandings the more you get into it because you can have a model. You know, I was very inspired by those movies. That's exactly the kind of improv (laughs) that I would like to learn to be able to do. But if you're focusing too much on you know, who are my idols in this area? Who are my exemplars of virtue, whether in humor or 
or ethically. At least there are different levels of skill, and I'm not sure what the skill is exactly in being able to translate that into practical action, right? You can have your, what would Jesus do pendant or whatever, <laughs> yeah. but you don't really know. And so what would Christopher Guest do is even perhaps worse because do you want to be a Christopher Guest imitator? You know, at least there's something, nobody seems to mind, at least a prima facie, you know, if you're morally upright in an imitative way, right? That I just want you <laughs> to be acting in a way that is not objectionable, but maybe a better way to think about ethics is more like one of those artistic pursuits where being purely imitative not only means that you're not going to get it right all the time, right? You're not going to be able to figure out, you're not in that person's head, but you're not living artistically in the way that actually makes sense that, you know, there are plenty of folks who, who see morality as something that is, everybody's in a unique situation at all times. There are rules of thumb that we can have. There are models of virtue that we can have, but ultimately it's, even if you have rules, you have to decide how to apply those rules to the current situation. So it's really not any different than having a moral exemplar and figure out what would that person do. It always takes your own personal judgment, which is going to take that, it was going to require that experience of having gone through lots of situations. I think that's fantastic. I agree a thousand percent. I think sometimes in improv, if I know who I am and I don't need much, I really don't need much to know who I am. Well, then I can take on this other set of morals or set of standards or, and, and be this other person. Something that I, I am really big on is this idea of how do we define people to each other? If I wanted to tell you about the worst boss I ever had, all right, and you're going to tell me about the worst boss you ever had, what's the language you're going to use? And we can demo this where I can just tell you what the answer is. It just seems like we should do it interactively, even though I'm going to say the wrong thing. <laughs> well, I know you're going to say the right. I've been doing this for 25 years. I've asked this question a lot and people generally, and if it's not right, I'll massage it so it is. Don't worry. It does seem like that you would refer to, for instance, one of the characters on The Office or some other, you know, I remember describing my mother to someone as like too much of a Mrs. Brady type. And he didn't know even what that meant because this was a person who was like a, a real sage in the community of the, the college that I was going to, thereby did not watch TV. So yes, having those references, which we're all kind of embarrassed about a little bit knowing because they're from pop culture. So not if I said, oh, it's like Flaubert's, you know, a hero. The, like you probably wouldn't even know. We're not going to have a, 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 you know, except for a fairly narrow, maybe for somebody from Shakespeare I could name and could be reasonably sure. But what is the right answer? Well, I think what you're doing, you, you just did it. You picked something that you felt would resonate with the most people. My mother is a Mrs. Brady type. And if you have seen the Brady Bunch, you know exactly what this person is talking about. So when we describe our boss or our mother or anyone to anyone else, we always label it. Well, I had this one boss, perhaps even say what the company was. It was a tech company, or I was an intern, or you, you, you label your status within this hierarchy. And people do this, just, I don't tell them, they'll just do this. Tell me about your boss. Oh, so I was working at the Chicago Trib and the, like the classified call center. I was on the phone all day. You know, it's like, they just know to do that. They know that for you to understand, you need to know where I, I was in this situation. And then I can describe the boss. And I will do it in such a way that gets you to understand. And I won't mention Flaubert, as you mentioned, but I'm going to mention Mrs. Brady. And what is Mrs. Brady? It is a collection of behaviors. 
pleasant, nice, always a smile. Ha 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 ha. You know, uh, nothing seems to get under her skin. She's fair and honest and good, but maybe a little saccharine, you know? And it's like, all right, I get that. Uh, you have described a context and a behavior. And those two things together give us a character, a character that an improviser can play easily. Now, if you're doing, you're writing a novel or a movie, maybe you have a different set of rules. But if you just tell me right now, I want you to go into a scene, you're going to be an, an incompetent doctor. It's like, got it. Can do. Can do. Easy. Uh, you have told me a context I live in, a doctor's office, and a behavior. Incompetent. And I can go all day. We could go all day listing 10 things an incompetent doctor might do. They're always dropping their notes, right? They can't find the tools or instruments, right? They're getting the name wrong. They're always getting the person's name wrong. They're visiting. And so it's this idea of thinking about people as a behavior becomes a really powerful tool. And we can look at characters and literature, characters and things, and isolate them as a set of behaviors, which you did, I want to say. <laughs> Is the death of improv thinking too hard, pausing too long, you know, setting up too complicated a problem for yourself. Quite possibly, yes. And it's very fun that you mentioned that after a pause in our conversation. There, there, <laughs> there are two voices in our heads at any given time. One voice, and I'm sure there's a, some philosophical stuff around here as well. Uh, what's that? The little, body, the little person that lives inside your brain, you know? Well, then what lives inside its brain? You know, but the, <laughs> the homunculus. Homunculus, yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> well, there is the piece of us right now that's having this conversation, that's hearing it and is in the moment. There's another piece of it that's sitting just outside the conversation who notices a bird out the window, who notices that pause went on too long, who notices who's checking the time, who's slightly outside the conversation. The voice that says, I have talked too much. The voice that says, the person I'm talking to is like looking away nervously. I need to wrap this up. Now, I don't know if that's emotional intelligence or what you want to call that. Really good storytellers and really good conversationalists are naturally good at that. It's the subconscious thing uh, that they're just naturally, they can read the room. And that's what they're doing. What's outside this conversation? What's outside this speech right now? And they're really, really good at that. So you have that inner reflexive in the moment emotional thing that we're just talking and conversing and enjoying each other's what we have to say. But then there's this piece that sits slightly outside. And it's, it's a little bit judgmenty. And in improv, that voice can say things like, you're doing it wrong. You're not funny. This isn't any good. And that can be the real, or this doesn't match what Christopher Guest would do. And it's that voice that stands outside that when it's saying the wrong stuff gets us in trouble. Well, and that is probably why I'm interested in why I became, I don't want to say a philosopher, people who are into <laughs> philosophy unless they're professional philosophers, don't like to say they're philosophers. But and, you know, how much philosophy have I written today? I don't know. But uh, I'm going to go with it. Philosophic sages, I'm going to overstate now. No, somebody who has an innate sense of alienation is more likely to become a philosopher because you always want to go meta. So I want to, I'm clamping my teeth since we've reached sort of a point where I'm trying to think about, have we both made our points? Have we achieved what we're setting out to achieve here? And some of my early influences in comedy were folks that were meta and ironic about everything and being able to break the fourth wall. But yet that in itself becomes kind of a tired shtick. And it is a way of dodging responsibility. So 
to connect this to ethics again, <laughs> you could be in a situation and a common thing a philosopher might do is to get wrapped up in which rule am I applying? How am I applying it? Let's look at the precedent cases. Let's compare. You've got too many tools that you're bringing to the table. And it's usually to actually make a decision. You just kind of have to throw all that away, which is one of the reasons why there's been professors who teach ethics are not necessarily any more ethical than anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that there's something even about this art of living that once you abstract it, once you step away to codify it, to talk about the history of how these things have been thought about. I mean, that still might be good if you're making public policy decisions. You probably don't have to make them in the moment. <laughs> but in terms of actually dealing one-on-one -on -one with a person, I often think about, you know, there's these like candid camera kind of ethical tricks that people play to see how corrupt everybody else is. You know, like, let's put a dollar bill on the ground and we'll see. And, you know, or let's have a wallet fall out of somebody's pocket and we'll, you know, then film the person who you know, this is done in front of, do they give the wallet back? And I feel like I always fail that kind of thing <laughs> because I'm, and that it's cheating. I need to be able to stop and abstract. And so there, as time goes on, I've gotten certainly better about not saying the wrong thing, but that's sort of the story of the problem that I have with improv is just going with it, making a decision, committing to it and not stepping back and trying to analyze it. Totally. Welcome to the club. You are far from alone. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a great thing. And I think certainly if there are some interesting philosophical differences between improv and, you know, hardcore philosophy is this notion of, well, at improv, you can't step away. You're going to have that voice that is outside. And, it, and if it's that voice is sharpened and honed, it's going to have some good advice for you. But it's all in the moment. It's all very, very short term. It's all very narrow. Uh, it's all, a lot of people use sports analogies. You don't have time in a football game. You know, you've either got your blocking technique down as, a, as an offensive lineman or you don't. And when you're in the game, you're either executing your blocking technique or you're not. Chances are you're not like, well, what did coach say again? If the, you know, <laughs> if the defensive end uses a swim move, what, how do I move my feet? It's like, no, you either know it or you don't. In that regard, practicing improv, burning through a bunch of scenes so you're not just nervous about it, it is going to be helpful. Something I do with young improvisers all the time is like, let's just be in a doctor's office. Let's be somewhere you know. So there isn't much judgment. You, you can fake being in a doctor's office. I bet you and I could fake a doctor's office and record it and put it up online and say, hey, check out this doctor's appointment I went to, just a checkup. You know, I bet we could fake people thinking it was that a real checkup. podcast goal. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if you it can It wouldn't be a funny doctor's office. It would just be a doctor's It would be mostly waiting. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But if people believed it, well, then we're accomplishing that thing I said earlier about good storytellers, good joke tellers. You believe them. Harry Potter, we believe more than Twilight. So if we can get people to believe us that what they're seeing is reasonable and, and actually true, well, then being funny is easy. That's a hair's breadth away. And maybe next time we can talk about that transitioning from being real to being funny. But uh, <laughs> if we can get people to believe what they're seeing, then, then being funny is, I wouldn't say trivial, but simple. So do you think that we fooled people into thinking that this was not entirely scripted? <laughs> We've both been reading this entire time. And nailing our readings too, by the way. It has come across so natural and so in the flow and in the moment. There have been no jarring transitions. A plus on your reading, man. That was fantastic. So I think, I think we need a judgment if this is philosophy versus improv. I'm going to say improv one this time. 
I feel more profoundly changed than I bet you do about what I had to say about ethics. What do you think? I enjoyed what you had to say about ethics, but I would say that most of those things, while they were fun and exciting and cool and certainly made me think, they did follow perhaps something I had laid down first. So perhaps improv had the initiative this week. And <laughs> there might be something about the first salvo. So maybe next time yeah. I'll do it first and then we can see how that, how that works out. But at least <laughs> it was not as horribly unnatural as I thought. I did change the thing that I wanted to teach you halfway through. Okay. So that we're only about halfway into the topic. But I think the, well, what did, what do you think the philosophy lesson was? Well, the half philosophy lesson, and this is going to be, again, my little outside voice that can look at and see all these things and try to see patterns and recognize things. Something about, I wouldn't say the impossibility of improv, but this notion of, you know, you mentioned a lot about being inside a situation versus outside a situation, you know, and and, and Mm -hmm. ethically, I can't just stop and run through my ethics checklist in every situation I am in life. And that resonated with me as being like, yeah, improv's like that too. I could see how looking at improv you're going to see that problem. How, how do you do this thing from a checklist, you know, or, or step outside of it? Was I right? Was I close? Yeah, well, it's <laughs> really just trying to introduce the idea of the distinction between the content of your ethics and the application of your ethics. Love it. That a lot of us agree that stealing and murder are bad, and then we could go through and maybe we have different opinions about abortion or whatever, but I bet actually that we're given that you are in the the liberal arts (laughs) as I am, that we probably have pretty similar opinions. Can I guess that you didn't vote for Trump? Can I guess that? I did not vote for Trump. Okay, well, (laughs) I didn't even have to guess that. I already knew that. We're we're in a bubble. We're in in neighboring bubbles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But even with all that in common, there's still the amount to which you feel like you have to have these principles derived from some more general principles. And then the next step, well, we can talk about next. <laughs> well, thanks, Bill. Sure, man. This has been great. This has been fun. We, we hadn't sincerely hadn't planned this or talked about this much. Just a few emails back and forth. And I had a good time. I enjoyed myself. All right. So long, listeners. We hope you enjoy this. Hey, we're now entering the supporter portion. <laughs> so now we can go a little more meta. So did you... Do you think this is a formula that we can try to repeat? <laughs> I think so. I mean, if you felt this matched the tenor of what you're looking for, of what your audience uh, would like. Let's ask you supporters. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, so I'll put this up with this appendix for the uh, Partially Examined Life and the Pretty Much Pop crowds. See what they think that I've uh, you know thought a lot over the years about how people like to learn philosophy. And the Partially Examined Life is kind of a high bar to entry. We try to not name drop so much, but we've been doing it for so long. (laughs) And even when we started, it was more experienced people shooting shit, trying to explain themselves. But we got much better about teaching the audience. And we're discussing a text. So it's very specific. Yeah. So I've tried a couple things where I've uh, I had this format called Glimpse. Like, let me take one of our two-hour episodes, try to distill the thing that I want people to learn to like seven minutes and just give that as a monologue. And like, (laughs) would people like that? Maybe I I didn't do enough of them. It was mostly for financial and 
reasons why I didn't want to put that much more time into that thing. Yeah. And I've also sampled a lot of other philosophy podcasts that try to mix in comedy. Okay. So there's this one modern day philosophers. I don't know if you've heard, so this guy, Danny Lobel, he was, this is stand up, stand up being a whole other world that I was sort of envious about before improv because they're way more stand up podcasts. There's so many, every stand up comedian has a podcast. Sure. Sure. And they're all talking about their philosophy of stand up comedy and revealing that clique of people who are on the road together and they're all funny and they're all smart. And it's kind of like, this is a cool group that I want to be around. Yeah. But if you, as modern day philosophers tries to do, just interview these comedians about their philosophy. And then Danny forces them to read a little bit of, like, I've paired Mark Marin with Spinoza. This is one of his episodes. So we're going to first just talk to Mark Marin, you know, kind of do a normal interview. And then for the second half, we're going to pull out a few passages of Spinoza. And without any context, without any preparation, in fact, the host goes out of his way, like, I don't know anything. I don't prepare this. My friend who is a philosophy major prepares these quotes for me. We're just going to read them and tries to guess and what they mean. And that can be very entertaining. It's a, it's a good podcast. I'd sure. recommend it. Okay. But in terms of learning philosophy, it's terrible. Like, because you don't, <laughs> you know, these people don't know anything about it. So I'm trying to figure out what is still like an entertaining way to, so potentially, like this was a pretty genuine conversation and maybe that is the safest place, but I'm still at least open to the idea since you like long term improv of whether steadily or immediately, like, sort of making characters out of ourselves. Sure. That's the kind of thing that happens organically in good improv scenes. You don't have to have an idea to start an improv scene. We can just start talking and pretending to be something. And then that outside voice is going to pick up on something. Yeah, Mark keeps asking questions. Mark keeps changing the subject. Maybe that's something. Maybe I should dig into that. And when I do start digging in, you might say, oh, Bill asked me about that. Maybe he's detecting something that I need to strap on and play a little harder, you know? And again, these contrasting behaviors can start growing. And that's what we really enjoy watching. Any great comedy sketch, any classic SNL sketch, many times it is inappropriate behavior. You know, Chris Farley, van down by the river, just like, this guy is terrible. He's doing his job horribly. And it works because the world around him is shocked by him and like, oh, uh, uh, no, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. And we all have been in those situations in life. So we, we recognize them and we we're glad we're not in them. And we laugh at the poor suckers who are stuck in, in those, in those bad situations. Do you have ideas about this, uh, format i mean the trying to like we're not going to take turns yeah and therefore somebody is always trying to pull the discussion or, or that could get very old very fast well you uh, know <laughs> uh, uh, i think us being i think you mentioned it earlier just being honest might be a good thing it might be a good way mm -hmm. to go i do agree with a point you made earlier that me having the football first it's kind of like tic-tac-toe you're not going to lose if you go first you may not win, but you're not going to lose. And if we'd like to do this again, give you the first move, the opening salvo, as you said, and have me play catch up a little bit or, or still have something. <laughs> and there's probably a way to do it where it's not so, I mean, we made a thing out of it of you're changing the subject and, you know, I'm changing the subject self-consciously and saying that I'm changing that, you know, like that became its own thing. So that became natural, even though. It obviously wasn't. <laughs> it got a little meta. And I actually pulled back from it to point at it and say, did you see that? Did you see how, you know, we... <laughs> I also, something that has fascinated me about 
I think the Socratic method, you know, we're talking about, you know, sort of your idols and Socratic method is entirely Plato's construction in those dialogues. Like apparently there are some professors that can do it with their students for real. I've never really understood that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And even though I didn't quite, you know, I kind of gave up the idea of trying to, uh, get you to say the point that I eventually wanted made, which I'm saving for another podcast. But I kind of, by just changing my mind and deciding that, no, actually the point is just going to be the difference between virtue ethics and rule-based ethics and how both of them require, well, it's actually called phronesis, the uh, practical wisdom to apply to a given situation. I ended up just saying that because it seemed like, I don't know whether I you know reached my endpoint too early by doing that something that I should have prodded you more on to get you to say something in that neighborhood rather than just giving the game away. Believe it or not, this is the kind of conversation that improvisers have after shows all the time. Straight up, I'm serious. Hey, when I said <laughs> that, what were you thinking? Because I didn't, you said something, and it just, I just didn't understand. I didn't know how to play it. Uh, I didn't know what to do with it. Or someone saying, oh, thank you so much when you changed the topic or when you did that, that really, because I was getting lost. That kind of stuff happens all the time. Or, or did you think that was all right? Do you think people are, at one moment that seemed kind of flat, did it feel flat to you? Those kinds of things end up being talked about over beers every, <laughs> or, or will be talked about in another month or two when the restrictions are lifted. Uh, <laughs> those will be the exact conversations. Yeah. Hey, I enjoyed myself, man, and I'm more than happy to do this again. If you feel this fits with the show that you want to produce and like doing, Let's do like three of them and sort of see, <laughs> see where we're at. That's a limited series or that's uh <laughs> but this is definitely postable in itself. I was very, you know, happy with the initial chemistry and cool. it's kind of good that we don't have any history that yeah. this really is like, we're going to do this entirely on tape, you know, <laughs> so to speak. Do you have any final, uh, uh, I guess a recommendation. We should, we should have a recommendation for something for each other of something that we can check out before the next thing. So I already brought up modern day philosophers. I will point you at that, uh, specific Mark Marin episode just so you can see like what a weird format this was. Sure. Danny LaBelle wasn't he now he goes by Daniel. He changed, but, uh, yes. Yeah. I'll, so do you have a recommendation for me of some other improv product or something that maybe I could, uh, set my teeth into before next time? You know, improv products are, there aren't a lot of them. On my Facebook page, you can access the Chicago Improv Studio. I do a jam every Thursday night, and it gets posted to the Facebook page. You can watch some of those. I'm trying to think of other media. That's a great start. Let's That's just great, do that for now. That's what I'll I watch do. your jam. Maybe I'll get brave enough eventually to show up at it. I didn't even know that was a thing one could do. Yeah. but <laughs> There's a lot of jams out there, and one thing I enjoyed, to be perfectly honest, is I didn't get much of the kind of pushback I get talking shop with improvisers. I'm sure you get different pushback from philosophy people than I was able to give. And the improviser pushback, the problem is there aren't many authorities that I can say, well, Socrates did say, and and I can't, it's hard to win an argument with other improvisers. So thank you for letting me not (laughs) to say what I had to say unchallenged, or at least unchallenged in the way another improviser might challenge it. (laughs) Well, and I don't want to name drop like it's sometimes it's unavoidable but it, it ends up being a here's something that i really don't understand or support but let me just explain what this guy said about it because sure. at least it's a thing that then we can get out there and we can talk about objectively because we get both looking at the thing but you're not looking at the thing this is not us reading a text together so i kind of don't want it like if it's not something that 
actually would make sense to human beings at this point in history, maybe I shouldn't bring it up or just bring it up as a joke, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, all right. All right. Well, let's, let's quit while we're ahead. You got it. Perfect. Yeah. Bankrupt. 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 Bankrupt.